Well, let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to Acts chapter 8 and get at it. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they'll be happy to get one into your hands. Acts chapter 8, as we continue our journey tracking God's amazing work to start and spread the church. That's what's going on in this book. It's God's amazing work, can't overstate that enough, to start and spread the church, the, the called out ones for God's glory, those who are saved by his grace through faith. And this chapter begins with the believers being persecuted and scattered. It's been a few weeks since we've been there, so let me see if I can kind of refresh your memory and bring you back up to speed. Chapter 8 starts with the believers being persecuted. And, and because of that persecution, they began to spread to the other areas around Jerusalem. Up to that point, they were localized right there. But they started then to go to Judea, the area immediately surrounding Jerusalem, and then further north into Samaria. You might think of it as the county surrounding Davenport and, and then the state surrounding the county, Samaria. And as they went, they preached the gospel. Remember we talked about that a couple weeks ago? I hope that's not out of sight, out of mind. And it wasn't just, you know, the, the leaders and the apostles. In fact, we know that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. But it was the people as they spread who preached the gospel, who proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, the responsibility that we ought to be emulating in our lives as we go throughout our days and our weeks and our months. They preached the gospel, including Philip the evangelist, of course, and the crowds there in Samaria, verse 6, paid attention. And look at it there in your Bibles. The crowds in verse 6 paid attention. It's a phrase we're going to see repeated. And when you see things repeated like that, especially so quickly in the Word of God, there's something going on. God wants us to pay attention to it. They paid attention, the crowds did, to the gospel. But, verse 9, follow along, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Like they thought he was it, like of the Lord and awesome. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Let's stop there. You talk about impact. You talk about effect. This is God's way of saying, don't doubt the power of the gospel. That's the first point of application I want you to hear and embrace and get here. Don't doubt the power of the gospel. You say, Pastor, we've already heard iterations of this. Like, what's going on? You just keep repeating yourself. True, true. Can't help it. Because that's one of the main thrusts in the entire book of Acts. It's the power of the good news of Jesus to have an amazing impact and effect. That's the purpose of these verses and the account that they record. 
We need not worry about whether the good news of Jesus can compete. Lock that in. We need not worry about whether the good news of Jesus can compete with all the other news out there, all the other philosophies, all the other ideas and the latest, greatest things or people to, to come along. The gospel can and does compete and win over every single one of them. Truth always wins out. It's only a matter of time. Unfortunately for some people, it's going to take till when Jesus returns in eternity for them to realize that truth always wins out, but it always wins out. The gospel always triumphs. It can and does compete. We need not worry. Nor do we need to worry about whether it can compete with the glitz and blitz of entertainment these days. You say, wow, that was then. And the gospel, yeah, sure, it could compete back then with what was going on. But now, I mean, with all the lights and, and all the screens and all the things going on, I mean, there's just no way. Think again. Because magic in that day was as captivating as anything in our day. True. As captivating as any movie you've ever seen on your best of list, as captivating as any book, any sports uh, that you've witnessed or heard about, any concerts that you've been to, like you name it, magic in that day was something. I mean, it was massive. Practiced by both Jews and pagans. Pagans and Jews. Rodney Stark wrote the book, The Triumph of Christianity. I'm almost done with it. You've heard me mention it before. He covers this uh, during that particular time. Magic was prolific during that day and age. It was going on. And oftentimes, in fact, most of the time, it was fueled and backed and, and compelled by demonic forces. The magic, it was literally black magic. Jews and pagans. But they didn't care. They didn't care how it was fueled. They didn't care how it happened. They just cared that it worked. And they didn't care as long as it healed them and blessed them and, and cursed others and, and harmed people and, and protected them. Like, no questions asked. As long as it worked, it was good. And to see someone like Simon invoke an incantation, put yourself in the situation. To see someone like Simon invoke an incantation or apply a potion that brought visible results in the moment would have wowed anyone. So much so that he was called great and thought to possess the power of God. We wouldn't have been any different. Look at verse 10 in that respect again. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. They thought he was the cat's meow and we would have thought the same. I mean, you think that you're impressed now when you go to, I don't know, they have these shows at Adventureland, Silver Dollar City, they do Six Flags, whatever. You think you're impressed now when you go to a magic show and you see somebody do something that you know it's not really real, but like it still wows you. Imagine if the person really was levitating. Like that weirds me out even to just say it and think about it. I imagine if the person on the stage really was underneath some kind of a legit spell. Backed by the powers of darkness. And imagine if you saw that go on day after day after day for a long time. It'd be the greatest show on earth. Come on. They paid attention to him, verse 11, because for a long time 
he had amazed them with his magic. It wasn't just, you know, come and go, hit and miss, pop into town, fool a few people, get a little money, and then go back out and fool some more in the greater fool theory, you know. No, no, no. For a long time, it was legit magic that was going on. As dramatic and captivating as anything in our day. And yet, they also paid attention to Philip when he showed up. Why? Because the gospel was even more powerful, even more dramatic, even more captivating. Not only because it was accompanied by healings, as we saw in the first few verses of chapter 8, but demons weren't responsible. In fact, they fled with loud shrieks, it says, at the name of Jesus in the preaching of the gospel. They fled. Does that happen all the time when we preach the gospel? No, no, not even most of the time. But it did then because God deemed it necessary. Necessary to get their attention and compete with all the other stuff that was so gripping and going on around them. And he'll do the same in our day. And he is doing the same in our day. Look around. Like it may not look the same. You know what God does and what he packages the gospel and what he puts around it. It may not look the same as it did then. But it sure does have the same effect. It sure does grip people to the core. It sure does turn them upside down and inside out. It sure does cause them to bend the knee and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ when before they would surrender to nobody. It sure does heal them. It sure does restore them. It sure does redeem them to a relationship with their Creator. It may not look the same, but it certainly has the same effect. Don't doubt the power of the gospel, especially so because it's gripping for those who are open. Don't doubt the power of the gospel because it is gripping for those who are open to it. Like the Samaritans. We talked about this in the first part of the chapter. God had prepared them two ways to hear and receive the gospel. Do you remember? First of all, he prepared them through their difficult circumstances. They didn't live an easy life and their past was not easy. He prepared them to receive the gospel because they were yearning for something better. They were yearning for a hope that was solid. And on the other hand, he prepared them by fashioning their worldview to accept new ideas coming into them. And God does the same in our day. Whether God brings people to the end of themselves through hard times or shapes their worldview for new ideas, he prepares them to receive the gospel. I mean, lest you think or we think that somehow it's our, you know, awesome presentation of it over a cup of coffee that's going to change people's minds and hearts or some eloquent preaching or something that's going to do it. Not happening. It's God who does it because God has prepared people usually one of two ways, either through difficulty in their life or an openness to new ideas. And when they hear the gospel having been prepared by the God above, they are gripped to the core. They too pay attention. I marvel at it all the time. God forgive me for being surprised that people actually pay attention to the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. But they do. 
at least those who are open to it, they too pay attention, oftentimes cut to the heart and unable to shake it. They just can't get it out of their mind. Even if they don't want to believe it, they don't want to accept it. They don't want to turn. They don't, they don't want to give up their former way of life and all of that. They, they can't shake it because it's that powerful. It's that powerful. And don't doubt that it changes those who believe. It is not only gripping the gospel and all its power for those who are open to it, but it changes those who believe. I want to spend some time on this one. Those who truly believe. Look at verse 12 again. This is an underliner in your Bible. The people of Samaria paid attention to Simon, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. In other words, when they believed the truth about God's authority and God's desire to rule and reign in their lives, providing for them and protecting them, just like any good king would provide and protect for those who are in his care. When they, when they believed the truth about his authority to do so, his power to do so, and his desire to do so, they were changed. When they trusted Jesus to forgive their sins and cleanse their soul, they were changed. Not just amazed like they were with the magic, only to go on about their day like before, but different. And on the inside, they were changed from the inside out causing them to live differently from the outside in, causing them to think differently, causing them to align themselves differently. No longer followers of Simon, but followers of Jesus. The, the gospel so changed them that they were like, to heck with Simon, I'm about Jesus. I'm about Jesus. I'm about the true power, the power that changes me. Not just the power that has an effect on people because some guy does some hocus pocus stuff, but the power in me. They align themselves with Simon or with Jesus instead of Simon. No longer adherents of magic, but truth. No longer enthralled by the world, but the church. No longer inclined to sin, but righteousness. No longer focused on themselves, but others. No longer obsessed with entertainment, but worship. No longer lovers of self, but God. And that's just the short list. The gospel has the power to change those who believe and does. Starting with baptism. Baptism. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, which, by the way, was unthinkable in that day. It wasn't a woman's thing, it wasn't a woman's prerogative. That's why the emphasis there, totally countercultural. So many people like denigrate Christianity, they say, oh, it's such a hierarchical sort of thing, whatever, and it puts women down. It, it does exactly the opposite. It lifts us all up that before God, we are all equal in his eyes, men and women. And so they too were baptized. Men, women, young, old, rich, poor. They changed their allegiance from the things of this world to the things of God. That's baptism. 
It's being immersed in water to change, to show outwardly what has already taken place inwardly, that we have changed our allegiance to the things of this world, including ourselves, to being all about Jesus Christ. It's a public proclamation that Jesus is Lord of your life. It's a public proclamation that you are his and he is yours. A public proclamation that you are saved and he alone did it. That's the first way the gospel changes people who believe. It causes them to set aside their old ways and their old beliefs and their old allegiances and publicly align themselves with Jesus and the way. It's that powerful. The gospel is. It's that powerful. And anyone who truly believes it is that changed. That changed to stand in the waters of baptism publicly and say so. But that's not it. That's not the only way that the gospel changes people. It also changes people's direction. It changes their allegiance and changes their direction. Like Simon who also believed, it says in verse 13, and after being baptized himself, he continued with Philip. He accompanied him. He went with him. And that is, he dropped what he was doing and joined what God was doing. He changed direction. That's the whole definition of repentance. It's a change of direction in your mind and heart that results in bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and a change of direction in your life. That's what people do who truly believe. Loved one, if you've not had a change of direction in your life outwardly, you may want to question whether you've really had a change of direction in your heart inwardly. You may want to question whether you're really saved. If you haven't been changed. Because the gospel is that powerful. Now, does that mean that when you get saved that you should quit your job like Simon presumably did and started traveling around with Philip? Or that you should sell your house or, you know, go on the road if you embrace the gospel? No, at least not usually. Usually, it means you change your perspective right where you're at. So that now, you work to give instead of get. You get up every morning to go and see how you can bless those around you, how you can bless your company, how you can bless your boss, how you can bless your customers, instead of going there in order to get some money so that you can do more with what you want to do with it. You get up every morning so that you can make more in order to give more to the work of the kingdom. That's usually, in fact, that's always what happens whether you change your geography or not. You use your time and talent and treasure for God's glory instead of your own. You try to influence others instead of ignoring them like you used to. You love them instead of hating them. You bless them instead of cursing them. That's what people do who truly believe. They change because they're changed. Have you been changed? They change because they're changed. And they keep changing. Those who truly believe the gospel keep changing. It has the power to change our life and our direction when we're first saved. And it has the power to change our life and the direction every day 
thereafter. And it should. So often we think that it's just a one and done sort of thing. And then we kind of coast, having been given a push. And we slide on into eternity, into the presence of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel has just as much power now as it did then. Just as much power to turn you here or turn you there. Or change your heart. Or edify you more. Sanctify you all the more. So that you will be glorified one day. And you will go sailing into heaven. Sprinting across the finish line. Instead of just moping along. The gospel has the power to change us every single day of our life. And if we truly believe in it, we will be surrendered to it so that we will be changed all the more from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus Christ. As he changes you, you'll surrender more and more. And as you surrender more and more, he'll change you more and more to the point of doing and saying things you never would have done before. Doing and saying things and going places that you wouldn't have even considered yesterday and last week and last year. The gospel is that powerful. What a glorious life to live, amen? What a glorious place to be in the power of Jesus Christ. I can't commend it enough. And if that sounds scary to you, like, man, I might do something tomorrow that I wouldn't even think about doing today. I might say something to somebody. I might go somewhere. I might, I might go be a missionary. I might go into ministry. Like if that scares you to no end, like think again. Because like Simon, when you join God's work, it's flat out amazing. Look at the second part of verse 13. Seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Expect nothing less in your walk with Jesus Christ. Expect nothing less. We're so content with mud puddles when God has sandcastles awaiting us. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. Don't doubt the power of the gospel to grip those who are open and change those who believe, including their allegiance, their direction, and their reaction. Their reaction. Second, don't be confused by a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what we find in these next chunk of verses. Don't be confused by a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 14 to 17 on this. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, two of the apostles, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They hadn't been baptized in the Spirit. They hadn't been brought under the Holy Spirit's influence. They'd only been brought under the influence, under the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Laying on of hands being simply a visual and symbolic way of conveying both affirmation and transfer. That's all that laying on of hands is. We continue to do it in our day and age. We're going to do it next weekend as we commission Mike and Emily and, and they go out and, and, and lead a church in Indiana. We're going to lay hands on them. It's simply a way of conveying affirmation and transfer. And in this case, the apostles were demonstrating their affirmation of the Samaritan's salvation and they were visualizing the imparting of the Holy Spirit as if the apostles were the conduits. That's all that the laying on of hands is. But the issue here is the lag time. The lag time. 
the separation between their baptism into Christ, their, their conversion, and their baptism in the Spirit. In fact, this is one of three passages where that's the case. The others are in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost that we already looked at. Separation between when they believed and when they received the Holy Spirit. And then the third one is in Acts chapter 19 at Ephesus. Same idea, same thing going on. And they believed at one point and then later on they received the Holy Spirit. Separate. Three instances where people received the Holy Spirit after they received Christ. After they were saved. Which begs the question, is that normative and prescriptive? or informative and descriptive? These three instances. Are, are they normative and prescriptive? Like, is that for us in our day and age right now? Is that what we're to do? Is that how it happens with us? Or, or is it informative and descriptive? And the answer is the latter. It's informative and descriptive. This is not our pattern, nor something that we should try to do. When people receive Christ as their Lord and Savior, we don't need to gather around them at some later time, some later date, to lay hands on them and pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. We don't. The Bible is clear. We receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, the moment we're saved. Otherwise, we're not saved. Romans 8.11 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, is not saved. We receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. The moment, it says in Ephesians 1, that we hear and believe. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit at that point, Ephesians 1. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8 at that point. We are washed by the Holy Spirit and renewed by the Spirit, Titus chapter 3. And we are born of the Spirit, John chapter 3. All various aspects of being baptized in the Spirit. And that is brought under His influence. And all at the moment we are saved. And there's nothing partial about it, as some people say. Some people be like, well, well, yeah, we get a portion of the Holy Spirit when we're saved, but we don't get all of him. That comes later when someone lays hands on, you pray for, and you have the faith, you know, to receive all of the Holy Spirit. As if the Holy Spirit can be subdivided, person, third person of the Trinity that he is. He can't be subdivided. We don't receive part now and part later. He's everywhere in every place, fully so. He's not subdivided. Not in our hearts, not in the world. We receive all of him when we're saved. Once again, because Romans 8.11 says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Isn't saved. So salvation and spirit baptism go hand in hand. At the same time, when you were saved, you were baptized in the Spirit. That's normative. That's prescriptive. That's the New Testament pattern, which makes this passage and the others like it descriptive and informative. You say, well, why in the world do we have these instances then? What's the purpose? There are four. Four reasons. First of all, it was meant, this separation between conversion and spirit baptism was meant to emphasize the Holy Spirit's new covenant influence. It was meant to emphasize the Holy Spirit's new covenant influence. 
It was meant to demonstrate his new influence and power under God's new way of salvation. As opposed to his less pervasive and the Spirit's less invasive influence in the Old Testament where he was with people and with the people of Israel generally and he rushed on individuals in particular for certain times but then withdrew to be with but not in or on. And, and so this was about emphasizing the Holy Spirit's new covenant influence, his new way, and his radically invasive way of influencing us. Second, this separation was meant to emphasize the gospel's effect on the Gentiles. It was meant to emphasize the gospel's effect on Gentiles, non-Jews, people who for the most part were thought to be outside of God's plan. Like the Samaritans, they too were included in this new way, of, uh, 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 new way to God. And to make sure that everybody realized it and accepted it, he separated the process of salvation. It was like he wanted to shine a great big spotlight on the whole thing. To emphasize that the gospel is for everyone, it's for the whole world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Third, the separation was meant to overcome prejudice and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Prejudice and hatred. They were arch enemies. And a separate baptism in the same spirit visibly proved that they were part of the same work. God's work. His work of redemption. And then fourth, it was meant to accentuate the transition between the covenants. The separation of conversion and the spirit baptism being brought under his influence was meant to accentuate the transition between the covenants. The transition between the old covenant, the, the old way of salvation through faith and obedience to God's spoken word and the new covenant where salvation is found through faith in God's living word, Jesus. After 2,000 years, that transition was epic. And God was trying to put an exclamation point on it in order to accentuate it. That something radically new was going on. And wanted to make sure that they didn't miss it. And so he highlighted it on occasion by separating their baptism in Christ from their baptism in the Spirit. Four reasons for why we have these instances recorded for us. But it doesn't apply to us. Just to be clear, don't be confused by a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't apply to us. It's not for us. We're not living in the middle of that transition. Nor is there any confusion between the old covenant and the new covenant. And, and like we aren't like those first generation of believers where they started out under the old covenant and then this new covenant came in and so there was kind of this uncomfortable overlap and, and this confusion and what do we do and what do we follow and we're going to see that more in Acts chapter 15 and all that. Like there was none of, there is none of that. There was that then, there is none of that now. We're, we're not in that transition. And maybe most important, coming full circle, it doesn't apply to us because the apostles made it clear in their subsequent writings in the New Testament that we receive the Holy Spirit at conversion. That's significant. Think about it. Having received him separately themselves at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, 
The apostles themselves first believed in Jesus. They were brought under his influence. And then later on, after he ascended, they were brought under the influence of the Holy Spirit in Acts. Acts 2. Having, having experienced that themselves and having experienced the same with others on these occasions, the apostles go on to tell us that we receive the Holy Spirit when we hear and believe. Don't be confused. A separate baptism doesn't apply to us. And last, don't be deceived by bitterness and sin. That's the third point of application that we see here. And boy, this gets really close to home really quickly because we're all very prone to this. We're all very prone to bitterness. Don't be deceived by bitterness and sin. We tend to, immediately when we hear something like that, we think of that person. You may have already done so as I just said that. That, that, that person that you know who's bitter. That person that you know who is deceived. That person who has created some alternate reality of the past because they are in the muck and the mire of the bitterness in the present. Certainly that applies. But the point here is don't be deceived yourself by your own bitterness, bitterness and sin. That's where, where it starts. It starts in the household of God. Look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. It's a scathing rebuke to say, may the influence of your wealth go the way of your life, all for naught when you die. Like your, your life's going to be all for naught if you continue on in this, and your money's going to be all for naught. May, may they both just go hand in hand. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, this privilege of laying on of hands. For your heart is not right before God. Your heart. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I, here it is, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, the turmoil of resentment, the misery of of animosity. You can see it. Plain as day, Peter said. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Common expressions to say, you're so bitter, you just as well have a sign around your neck. And so sinful that you're bound in chains. Verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. May we all be that quick to soften our hearts in turn. And then Luke ends the account by saying, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, Peter and John, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Simon was so bitter, he didn't have the ability of the apostles. 
and the influence of the apostles and the position of the apostles. He became sinful to the point of trying to buy it, trying to buy the privilege and the influence and the position and, and the role and all of that. Sinful to the point of wickedness in his heart. Look at verse 22 again. Repent, therefore, Peter says, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. The, the hidden deceit of your heart may be pardoned. Simon was so poisoned by bitterness and ill motives, bitterness and jealousy, he probably didn't even know it. He was self-deceived, creating a false reality that fit his desire for attention. I say that because Peter says in verse 22, pray if possible that the intent of your heart may be forgiven. It's not like God couldn't or wouldn't forgive his ill motives and bitterness. That's entirely possible. It's that Simon might not see his bitterness and ill motives to even ask for forgiveness. Pray if possible that the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Loved one, don't go there. Don't be deceived by your own bitterness and sin. Don't be clouded by your hatred and, and resentment of someone. Whether it's the person you live with, your spouse or a family member or somebody that you've been estranged from for years, a past co-worker, whoever. For God's sake, literally, and the sake of your soul, don't go there. Rather, as it says in Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That is, as long as there's daylight left and Christ hasn't returned. Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That none of you may get to the point of being unable and unwilling to even see your sin. To even see your bitterness. Let alone want to. Let alone want to. Encourage one another. That's the preventative. Urge one another. Press one another. Ask one another. Every day. So that your soul isn't cynical and your heart callous by the deception and the pretense and the treachery of sin. Especially the sin of bitterness. Deceitful above all other sins because it blinds us. I've been there. You probably have too. Bitterness blinds us. It blinds the motives of our heart. It blinds us that we're even bitter. It's somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's issue. We're justified in our anger. And it's just blindness upon blindness making our life one great big bird box challenge that we don't even know we're in. While everybody around us is like, dude, your blindfold is massive. What are you doing? What is that? Why, why are you leaving that on? And even worse, when we walk around in our own blindness, we tend to surround ourselves with others who are blind. Others who are bitter. So that our life becomes one great big echo chamber in that bird box. I hate that movie. Don't go there. 
And if you are or even think you might be, as you sit here, repent. Repent. Repent and pray like Peter said. Asking God for eyes to see your deceit. Asking God for ears to hear your bitterness. Asking God for people to tell you about it. People who think for themselves instead of thinking like you. Ask God for people around you who will say it like it is instead of saying it like you want. Ask him for people who are soft of heart instead of hard of heart like yourself. Repent and pray. Repent and pray. That's the solution. That's the preventative. So that your life and your influence and our life as a church and our influence doesn't go the way of Simon's. Let's pray.